Hello and welcome to the Lixnaw Research Project, Theatre Project, Podcast. I'm here with Dick Walsh. Hello. And Shane Connolly. Hello. And the idea of this podcast is that Dick sent me to do a lot of interviews and to provide research materials for mm. a show we're making. Yeah, you're a right good day? interviewer. That's the, that was that's why we've chosen you to do it. Yeah, that's yeah. apparent. But um, <laughs> what is the show? Dick? The uh, radio, the the podcast, or the the theatre show? No, the whole project. Ah, uh, the whole project. Well, I'll I'll, I'll sum up. Try to sum it up very uh, take, simply. Take your that, time. Yeah, take my time. The show is basically we're taking the history of kind of 18th century Lixna and essentially as a, as a reflection of 18th century Ireland even. And uh, we've deep dived into it, like really tried to understand the economics, the butter markets, the the land reclamation, you know, mm. enclosure um, and uh, <clears throat> all the kind of pertinent historical events uh, that are happening at this time. And then at some point we're going to like slide away from this historical knowledge, and which which we've started actually in the last two weeks with, with the rehearsals and put together a play, you know, and a story. Um, so, you know, that's the exercise. Have you ever heard it put as succinctly as that, Shane? In all your I, years working together? Probably not. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I once heard you say, Dick, that you wanted this to be as, well, factual as a, text, factual as a textbook, as comprehensive as a fairy tale. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's great. Did even, I say that? Do you even, yeah, you did. I was very impressed. That was good. Um, um, so, so you sent me off to, well, we all went down to Billy's house, Billy McGlynn. Yeah. Who was we took a, a day PhD off of the rehearsals and we drove down to Dingle to meet Billy. Yeah. We were staying in Ballybunion at the time. But I spent, mm. what is it, an hour and a half drive along the peninsula to get to... Bally Ferreter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, 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 I didn't realise when he said come to Dingle, I thought it was Dingle, but Bally Ferreter's another mm. half an hour beyond Dingle, like, so. Yeah. It added Dingle's a day. metropolis compared to, um. <laughs> Dingle is a very ancient town, very important port town in, in Ireland. For is a it? long time, medieval time, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe old. So Billy gave me about an hour of his time, mm-hmm. and we talked about, uh, he's a PhD in folklore, he's engaged in, he like recreates old instruments and old materials like that. Yeah, and I think he does some archaeology. Mm. Yeah, but um, like, what interested you in Billy? Why did you think he'd be anyone good to talk he, to about the project? He's definitely a folklorist, and and just to be clear, he's he's. Um, I liked him from what I know knew of him before this was that he he's 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 very academic as well, and he's very clear about what he does know and what he doesn't know, which I think is super important to this period because my own experience of jumping into the Irish history, you know, but the two of you, but like there's so many agendas always been put on it, you know, whether it's the Catholic agenda, mm. whether it's a nationalist agenda, whether it's an anti-Catholic agenda, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of agendas being put on it and uh, it's great to speak to people who are meticulous, you know. Um, and also he seems to have a genuine sensitivity for... Uh, the kind of spiritual side of ordinary people's lives, whether that's in how they they take part in rituals or their festivities, and uh, their worldview and what they think of as being important, and um, he does admit that like he gets that 
mostly from kind of 19th century folklore, but uh, but still he speculates that it, it mightn't have been so different back then. Um, yeah, he, he is quite open about not being an expert in the yeah. 18th century. Yeah, and also it's, it's very hard to be an ex- expert because there's so little... People at the time just did not document ordinary people's lives. They had very little interest in uh, peasants, as they would refer to them. So, Why? Why do you think that is? I mean, like, look at any, even even these days, I find, I find that every TV show, everyone's middle class. Do you know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> we're watching, uh, I won't get into too much, but we were watching, um, oh gosh, What's the is that Highlander? What's the name of that TV show? It's Outlander. Huh? Is it Outlander? And like, it's meant to be like back into 18th century Scotland and it's still, you yes. know, she's middle class. She just, and she's like got servants and stuff. And, uh, mm. you know. Well, there's nothing wrong with being middle class. So, yeah. uh, Shane, as an actor, do you find this sort of thing useful to listen to a, an interview like this? Uh, definitely so, definitely so. Uh, first of all, it was ridiculously interesting just listening to him talk about it. And um, I, I think the music idea that ran through it was great. Like he talks about, um, he talks about uh, the wake, the merry wake mm. during your interview. And that really conjured up something for me inside. That really did conjure up because I've been watching other stuff that Billy has produced. Like he's done a, a pagan rave. I don't know if you've seen that on YouTube, have you? No. Oh, wow. What was that? It, it it's it's so hard to describe. It's it's, mm. it's it's exactly as you would expect. It's a lot of people dressed up in quite pagan outfits, you know, quite animalistic mm. skulls and fangs and animal furs, and doing very traditional music. Lots of really resonant drums, uh, a butt mixed in with slightly more modern rave music. Uh, and it's fantastic. And what's really interesting, you should watch it. What's really interesting is because they, all these guys come roaring into a studio uh, and they're doing their rave and they're going crazy. Mm. And the audience have no idea what to make of it. You should just watch the audience. There's one lady. Really? She's she's clapping. She's having a great time. Mm. <laughs> and everybody else is there in their suit and tie. It's like, it's such a, a weird juxtaposition. But anyway, yes, for just for that idea, uh, in terms of the show, I was thinking of the... That the idea of the merry wake being an amazing part of a show, full yeah. of music, full of energy, full of full of joy, and full of weird juxtapositions as well. You'll hear about it anyway. But he talks about taking the corpse up and dancing with the corpse, which is so completely and utterly wrong for us now. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't seen as wrong then. That was seen as a quite a good thing to do because the person was still in that transition period. That yeah, transition I think that's something so curious about the whole thing is that I think a lot of people think the things just the further back you go, the more conservative people get. Yes, exactly. But then when you're talking to Billy or listening to this, you sort of realise that they weren't conservative; they just had a completely different exactly, thing going yes. on altogether. And definitely, there was an energy to them. Mm. You know that there was an energy to them. Again, I think my feeling is the same feeling that we all had when we thought about that of a misery of being in a ditch, eating, mm. you know, porridge and yeah. being cold and being miserable and, and a leak coming in through the. You know, that's my impression. It's a totally wrong impression, but that's not true. They had they had full energetic lives, and they were energetic people, full of music and tradition and hate. 
and anger and fun and laughter and jealousy, all of the things that we are right now. And mm. That's, you know, you get much, when you listen to him, I think you get more of a sense of the, of the people being more people than I'm giving them credit for, if that makes sense. So that was great to listen to. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's very true. And I think that one of the benefits of folklore is that it can be accurate to a feeling or a truth, but maybe not factually accurate. So, like, the stories people come up with are... I mean, there's a story you were telling, Nick, about was it your grandfather saw the Council of the Hares? Yeah, yeah. And he was just like, this is not for me. I don't know what it is, but it, I saw something I wasn't supposed to see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he was not, a, like, a, into any kind of fairies or anything like that. But at the same time, he did see a ring of hairs. I mean, in apparently, like, having a, a, a council meet, a meeting or something. Like, he was just, like, fr- like it just shook him a bit. Like, like that's weird, you know? Yeah, and, uh, it's like, I don't know what's happening entirely, yeah, but yeah. I'm not going to get involved. Yeah. And that's sort of probably a good lesson at yeah. the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. I think... I think uh, I know from my grandparents, you know, they would have a good laugh at, at people believing in fairies and uh, the stories and myths around it. And just, but like, they didn't discount it entirely either, you know. It wasn't totally mm-hmm. discounted, you know. And I like that. And to be honest with you, I, I don't discount it, you know. Who knows? Really? Oh, of course not, yeah. How can you discount like something that's been amongst people for so long who've lived in the same area, you know? Yeah. It's sort of like the way... Sometimes when you're out at night and you'll see like a shape and you're just like, oh, it's some crazy animal. And you're just like, maybe the city's given birth to some mutation. It's just, I'm not going to get involved with that. I'm not going to stay clear of that creature that I can't quite make out. Even though rationally, you know, it's just a dog or a fox. You're just yeah. sort of like, there's something more to that. I think I'll give it a miss. Yeah. Um. So... Will we just head on over to the interview? Yeah, let's listen to it, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. See you on the other side. So we're here Mm -hmm. talking about uh, folk Mm -hmm. traditions. Yep. And... uh, I don't know what the best way to start is, but I, I think the thesis would be that we're looking at the life of the normal person in the 1700s, which is hard to do, because what I think is that a lot of the historians are sort of in love with um, the big houses. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Like I was reading one account about the Fitzmorrises in Kerry, like a big family looks now, and his son was a bit of a renegade, and... There's this big account of his life. And then there's one bit where it says that he was going to get married to a scullery maid. And the account says, luckily she died. So he'll get married to like, a, a, you know, someone of his own satyr. And that's the vibe, you know? Yeah. And I mean, it's always a problem with history um, about your sources and source criticism and all of that kind of thing. But you know, the well-to-do, the people of high status are always going to have more written about them. Yeah. You know, if we look at 21st century um, culture, the minutiae of Kim Kardashian will be poured yes. over 
whereas the ordinary person on the street i mean it's just a part it's part of the problem that there's always more interest given to the people who are perceived as being the most important or the highest status yeah um you know trying to reconstruct history from the bottom up trying to look at uh what ordinary folk did how they lived where they lived how they might have viewed the world and they're making up the majority of the population yeah you know strangely enough the people who are most representative are the people who are least represented Mm. and it's always going to be a problem with history but you know if you want to flesh out ideas about how these people might have lived how people might have engaged with their world um Folklore and folk traditions can be at times quite insightful mm. in reconstructing their experience. Mm. Part of the problem, I suppose, of that, of finding a reliable account um, from the 18th century is that the bulk of our material, as usual, will come from 19th and 20th century accounts. And this is particularly the case with the National Folklore Collection as a source. It's a wonderfully rich source. Yeah. Phenomenally rich and granular in... Um, portraying or offering insight into how people perceive the world but it's a little bit later than our period Mm. but we can match it up to accounts from the time as well some of which are indirect of course um, or might be incidental to a bigger report on something but we find a lot of correspondences between behaviour, between patterns of um, you know of life how people engage with their environment um, mm. and there's no reason to think that plenty of the material that's valid for the 19th century would not be valid f- or would also be valid for the 18th century as well so it it definitely sets the scene i think and we can project some of the ideas plenty of the ideas i think back mm. a bit into the into the 18th century okay. um there's plenty of evidence to suggest that some plenty of elements of society pre-existed the 18th century. So it's yeah. definitely worth looking at, I think. I think oh, it's yeah, sure. definitely something worth pursuing in terms of how we might reconstruct these people's experience. Yeah. Um, I suppose one of the things we're talking about, we're trying to figure out the role of religion at, at this period, you know, like what the religious experience was like. And you made a good point earlier where, before we were recording about the Holy Wells, about how they were... Uh, sort of the during the penal times or during times when they couldn't access uh, priests, there were the religious experience, you know. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, there's a lot of arguments as to the origins of Holy Well traditions in Ireland. Mm. I'm sure strands of it are very old, um, but the vast majority of the experience, the encounter that people have with holy wells nowadays come from practices which were laid down in the post-medieval period. Okay. Um, A lot of wells got dedicated and rededicated after the medieval period. And I think part of that, part of the sort of flourishing or um, uprising of interest in holy well traditions was because people during penal times, of course, would not have had access to religion and religious um, rituals Mm -hmm. in the way that they normally would have previously. Um, so if people were not going to mass as much, if there was a shortage of priests in the areas, if priests were conducting clandestine rituals, mm. um, then things like going to a holy well and performing rounds would have been a very valuable outlet for people's religious expression at that time. 
Doing, um, doing rounds is like when you, you walk around saying prayers. Yeah, the, the fancy word for it is um, circumambulation, I think, which literally uh, just means walking around. Yeah. But it's doing it in a structured way. So, and people still do this to this day where they will walk um, around. It's very often called a pattern, okay. which actually is, is derived from the word patron hmm. um, because they would go on the patron's day, the patron saint of a particularly well, St. John or... Um, St. Catherine or something like that and they right. would go on the saint's day but they would perform what they called a pattern which is walking around the well perhaps a fixed mm. amount of times saying a particular set of prayers and then if there were other features on site like um, a, a, a tree mm. very often there are trees associated with holy wells or a saint's bed or something like that they would walk around those and they would pray for healing they would pray for intercession they would pray for help with the problems that they had Okay. And I would imagine for these people, um, you know, this idea of walking around repeating prayers in a structured way, it's very meditative in its mm. way. You know, nowadays we're very often thinking about mindfulness and about finding, you know, a space mentally and emotionally that yeah. is calming. And, and I can imagine for people who um, at times would have been living under tremendous pressure. Mm from poverty and from disease and from the uncertainties of life, that this would have offered very, very meaningful kind of succor to them. And of course, layer on top of that, the, the religious experience of people praying, of feeling like they're communicating with the divine in that, that space, it would have been a huge outlet to them. So it would have been quite um, active, like an active religion as opposed to these just being sort of uh, calcified yeah conditions. I mean it's contemplative as well but it, mm. it is the physicality of moving around I suppose offers people a kind mm. of a, a very visceral way of engaging with it mm. and you know this pilgrimages of course of all kinds would have been happening at that time too and these are a form of that if, if you like okay um, so and pilgrimage is a very old it's very medieval and, and older I'm sure um, is it, experience that people it, have so these things came out of the Middle Ages was it they weren't sort of present before well uh, it's it's hard to know and it's very mm. difficult to, to put your finger on where religious expressions where religious ideas first emerge yeah and particularly when you're looking at the folk expression of religion because it may go on undocumented for a long time mm-hmm. um, and there is a kind of a, a spectrum as well uh, of not only beliefs but practices so you have sort of the very sanctioned from on high kind of rules and um, catechism and that kind of thing coming from Rome in the case of the Roman Catholic religion. Yeah. And then you have what people on the ground actually believe, what people on the ground actually do. And sometimes they can be quite different. You know, mm. there's, it's, there's none of them, I think, that are not a, a valid expression of Christianity. It just manifests in different ways. But there's lots of things, you know, um, pilgrimage to holy places and performing penances and doing rounds and all these are these are old things that have been in Ireland for a very long time but I think the um, the flourishing of or the popularity of holy wells and you know there are thousands of holy wells around Ireland um, many of whom may have only got their dedication or their sort of status as a holy well in connection to a particular saint or religious figure um, would have been this act of uh, you know 
sacralizing these places would have very often taken place in the post-medieval context. And I think a lot of that had to do with people's lack of access to regular church and priests and things like that. Yes. Um, another strand to it as well is that as well as being religious places, holy wells were places of healing. Okay. And the indigenous uh, healers um, of Gaelic Ireland essentially lost their patronage with the flight of the earls and um, you know the the hereditary families the Hickey families, the Lee families who would have been attached to particular royal patrons, they would have been given land, they had these these um, healing books, these medicine books which contained translations of Latin and Greek and Arabic and English medical texts um, these were a very strong institution in Ireland and then mm. um, when they lost their patronage people no longer had access to their indigenous, to this established um, medical system. So for a lot of people, going to the Holy Well and praying for cures would have been access to a type of healing. Perhaps in some instances with the mineral contents of water, there was something there. In other cases, it would have been a form of folk folk healing or faith healing, for want of a better word. Um, That's interesting because... The idea most people have of folk knowledge is probably more like the the witch, or folk medicine would be like the yeah. witch. Someone who, like the way we're always given it, is that it's like almost an unconscious link to the world around them. And that through some, you know, the magical process being the knowledge of the herbs or whatever. But you're, you're saying that there was a time when the knowledge was held, like, among the earls, among the the upper class and sort of doled out like yeah but again i think it probably exists a bit like religion on a spectrum where you had the people who would be formally recognized as healers who would have undergone medical training Mm. um and you know in some cases this was within the indigenous milieu and then in other cases you know that's they were quite outward looking as well though and like i said the the aristocratic healers I suppose or the healers that were attached to the aristocratic families would have been cosmopolitan in their outlook and Mm. we see translations of texts from the Arabic world Greek texts, Latin texts so they were in touch with what at the time I suppose was best practice but also you know at the other end of the spectrum there you can bring it down to something as basic as when you sting yourself with a nettle you rub it with a dock leaf Mm -hmm. whether that's effective or not that's a form of healing Um, and everywhere from you know Irish the Leog you know the the leech of attached to a big house going to the continent to learn formal medicine all the way down to you know um, somebody healing on a local level but the the Ban Fassa would have been an important figure um, the, the the wise woman, the, the healing woman, you okay. know, I suppose the most famous band Fassa was Biddy Early. Yeah, from, from Clare. Clare. Yeah. Um, but there were many like her, and just near where we are, there was a band Fassa down in Balavohin, which is a townland just um, next to us here. Okay. And these were women who um, would have had knowledge of herbs, would have had knowledge of cures of different kinds they would have had knowledge of um, cures for maladies for skin complaints for you know a lot of the things that would have struck people at the time but also as part of that knowledge and perhaps something that distinguished them from the more formal um, healers would have been the idea that there were cures that were supernatural in origin 
um, okay. or at least there were afflictions that were supernatural in origin. Mm. Things like um, the eagle, evil eye or elf shot or those kind of things. Where I've heard of the evil eye. What's the yeah. elf shot? Elf shot was, you know, sudden pains in the joints. Um, okay. And some of the 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 Manofasa and other other healers as well. The quack doctor is kind of in 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 folklore is very often a, it's a male figure, a male version of the Banfasa. Um, they would have uh, practiced kind of medicine. Elfshot was this idea when people got sudden pains, perhaps arthritic pains or you know afflictions in their joints. Um, it was said to have been kind of um, piercing by arrows, supernatural arrows, fairy darts, okay. is what they call it. And in some instances, they would actually have stone arrowheads, Neolithic ones, which, you know, they would have found in old sites, and they would sort of palm them into their hand and, and show at this kind of flourish show that they had withdrawn this from okay. the afflicted area. Um, so, you know, there's a bit of trickery, there's a bit of psychology involved yeah. in this kind of healing as well. But the again, in, in the lack with the lack of access that a lot of people had to doctors, um this may have been the only access they had to healing. And I'm sure for a lot of the herbs, um, that it was meaningful, that it was effective in its way. Mm. Um we know that modern cer- certain modern medicines um, derived from, you know, folk knowledge of plant healing. So mm. aspirin being derived from salicylic acid, which was found in willow bark, and there's accounts okay. of willow bark being used, or uh, digitalis, the, the foxglove, which has a yeah. very, it's got a, a very um, weighty kind of set of traditions attached to it about healing, about poison about medicine and there's there's a lot to the idea of the digitalist the um Mernabuki. it has supernatural associations as well the fairy's fingers or the okay. that kind of thing so but modern medicine has was derived from that because it has I suppose St. John's Wort is another St. One. John's Wort yeah although St. John's Wort was not in Irish tradition as far as I can see used much for treating depression as much as it was used for um a disinf- uh, an antibiotic, I think, actually, that it was used in poultices. Yeah. Um, but there is, there's different, there's a, a huge wealth of, of herbs um, and and more than herbs as well. Um, there's all kinds of different things in folk medicine. Mm. And it again, it goes from on a spectrum from the very formal to the quite informal. So if you were, say, a labourer or a small farmer, you might have your own ways of, like, first approaching illness. Mm-hmm. But then there would be second and third, almost, uh, what would you call them? Like, opinions or options, do you know what I mean? Sure. You, you, could, you could try and do it yourself or, you know, within the family, that kind of thing. Mm. And then you may have sent for the Banfasa mm-hmm. who are the doctor, depending on who you had access to and who you could pay as well. So that was a big part of it. Um there's a, a custom as well, a tradition of particular families having the cure. Yes. And the cure is an interesting idea um, where families were said to have hereditary cures for particular things. Mm-hmm. Um, again, a lot of our knowledge of this comes from the 19th century, but some of them are seem to be older than that as well. Um, and the idea of families having particular cures. Sometimes the cure could be 
a particular poultice or a medicine, a potion that they would make up. And it may be just for one particular type of malady, you okay. know, something for cough, for example. Um, this particular family have a very good cough remedy. Right. And that was what they had and they would guard it jealously. Um, or in other cases, it was a more abstract form of the cure. So the cure might involve the laying on of hands mm-hmm. or breathing or in some cases applying blood from the healer onto the person who's afflicted. They really? would put a drop of their blood. Yeah, I think the blood of the Kyo, of Kyo family was used for curing shingles, I think. Okay. I think that was one where they would apply. I'm sure it was. That's very powerful. Yeah. Like the idea of someone like I guess it's quite a Christian idea, like the blood mm. and uh, have the blood put on you. Like, if you believed in it, that would probably seem like the most powerful thing you could do. Sure, you know? sure. And, you know, faith um, comes into it a lot as well. And, and very often it may be accompanied by prayers or charms that invoked religious figures as well. Yeah. So, again, drawing a hard line between faith healing um, and something that might have efficacy on a sort of biological level you know Uh so much of healing of course we know from placebo so much Mm. of healing goes on in the mind as well Um, so I think that probably formed a big part of it and was there a like I know at Biddy Early she was uh, people liked her for her healing but she was very unpopular with the church yeah I think um, you know a lot of the stories as well portray Biddy as a folk hero Mm. And they have grown up after the lifetime of Biddy. Okay. Um, but they portray her as standing up to the priests. Yes. But there is, I think, you know, part of that, there is a sense of rebelliousness um, attached to folk heroes. And perhaps yeah. um, in the 18th century, people standing up to authority like that, be it priests or the government at that time, um, you, see, you see that sense in oral tradition that mm-hmm. gives rise to people challenging authority. And for a, a, an underclass, for a dispossessed people, for people who did not feel powerful, mm. oral narratives and beliefs about these figures was a, a way of giving expression to their dissatisfaction with their lot. And yes. to use a modern term, speaking truth to power as such. Yeah. Figures like Biddy Early would have been particularly female figures, would have been seen as a challenge to the authority of the clergy or the government, depending on the context. Mm. And I think that's part of where the sort of the the friction and the sort of the dynamic there uh, comes out of is um, because she was a woman with status, because she was a woman who had power of a kind that this was seen as a challenge to authority. You see other figures as well. Sometimes the Banfassa would have been viewed in that way. Um, Keening women, of course, were seen in that way as well. Because Keening women, yeah, there's a lot of accounts from 19th and 20th century, mainly 19th century, but some earlier again, um, about, you know, the clergy. The clergy, I think, from the beginning disapproved of Keening. Mm. Um, Part of it is because elements of Keening contradict Christian teaching. So, um, some keening texts that survive from this time and one of the most famous ones is the Queen Arti Lyra, the Lament for Arti Lyra. But mm. what you see in some of the texts that survive of keening and what we know of it is that <coughs> um, there's a very real expression of um, that the person is gone 
and mm. that they're not coming back. And it seems to be a rejection of the church's teaching about the fact that they are in paradise or that yes. they're in purgatory. Um, and for that reason, I suppose, uh, but there was other reasons as well. And I think power comes into it. I think power is an important part of it. Um, Keening women gave voice to the community. They gave voice to people in their grief. They stewarded the dead, I suppose, from the world of the living to the world of the dead. They held that space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think priests and other authority figures may have resented the fact that they held that power in that way. And I think that was part of the reason why they disapproved of it. Yeah. Certainly in the post-medieval context, that seems to be, it forms part of the disapproval of Keening women is that they took that role and they would have formed a very important uh, role um, in that way in the absence of priests for example um, or at the times of wakes Yes, and wakes would have been a huge social event um, for people at that time and it was very important the structures the the social um, procedures that were involved in Mm. not only ensuring that somebody is buried properly. You know, you send them off properly, you give them a good send-off. Mm. But also, it's about the living and it's about resolving this new reality that somebody has died. It's about hearing grievances. It's about coming to terms and a giving voice to the grief that people feel mm. so that they may mourn properly. And keening women held that space and yes. they were resented for it at times. It's very interesting. Um, I think what's interesting about it to me is that we've been trying to move away from this idea that you can apply these general rules to people. You know, the question we started off with was like, what were people like in the 1700s? And I I like the discussion of the Keenan because it was so... You had these people who had a very particular role in and maybe saw their role differently to how other people saw it. The idea that these women saw their role as guiding or um, wasn't in that tradition that uh, people believed that the body could hear for three days or a few days after death, that they were sort of had this role in death and in dying and in this space that other people probably didn't concern themselves in the same way as, you know, like, if you turned up to a funeral, you would be aware of the keeners, but maybe you wouldn't fully, it wouldn't fully resonate with you what they were doing, unless you were like the family or... They they were facilitators. Yes. And that's, I suppose, a good way of thinking about it, is that they facilitate the personal and the community outpouring of grief. I mean, mm. a big part of keening is the chorus. So mm. it is, it allows people to engage in the grieving process. And they would join in on the keen. You know, I suppose the closer you were to the person, the more heartfelt that expression would be. Mm. But, you know, so much of our our funeral traditions, and even today, are just about solidarity. They're just about showing people that you're here with them in their difficult time. And very often that's as much as people want in that Mm. space. Um, it's also, I think, and you get this in the wake customs as well, um, the Keeney customs, the wake customs, this show of solidarity, this show of strength is in the face of death. 
Mm-hmm. So people stand up to death and they they challenge it and they, they, they respond to death with a show of life and with a show of force and vitality. You know, so many of the Keening games, or sorry, the the, the Wake games involved strength. Um, I've never heard of the, the Wake game. Wake game. So um, Wake's were this idea that people would the body would be laid out in mm. the in the family home and they would stay with the body and and they would have a wake mm. and we we still do this tradition to an extent nowadays but the merry wake if somebody was believed to have died a proper death which was a non-tragic death at what was perceived as the correct age so if somebody died peacefully in old age yeah. this was a proper a, a good death okay and in that case they would have a merry wake for the person. And the merry wake involved drinking, it involved eating, it involved smoking pipes, it involved dancing, mm-hmm. it involved games. Um, and they would sort of sit around waiting for it to start. And the the Borikin was the, the person who sort of stewarded or conducted the wake games. But games, the games could be, you know, competitions of strength lifting heavy weights they could be very boisterous games sometimes violent games really yeah and it was it's a it's a social phenomenon i think there's a lot of accounts of it from outsiders and they they talk about keening as well and it was in the context of the way that the keening would happen and they don't know what's going on they don't understand it and they think this is disrespectful yeah for example they if they're playing cards they might play cards you might deal out a hand of cards to the corpse Really? Yeah. Or you would pour out whiskey for the corpse. Mm. Or there's even accounts of people lifting up the corpse to dance. Really? Um, and it seems disrespectful on the face of it, but it's precisely the opposite. It is in this space in between living and, the de- and death where people believe that the dead could still hear. Mm. This was about showing them that they were acknowledging the dead person. It was about showing them that they were respected, that they were... Um, continue to be involved with the games and things like that but the whole thing is a spectacular show of force it is a you know a show of resolution in the face of tragedy and its vitality and its strength it's a you know it's a european wide phenomenon this notion of weight games and things like that Mm. um and the formal lament as well but to go back i suppose to the keening women um, they were professionals or semi-professionals and they knew what they were doing. Um, That's ver- it. Was it, um, I was actually going to ask, was it like a, were they, did they make the pure living off this or was it a role within, like a mode within the community? A mode of um, it, it, I, it, there, are, there are professional, certain professional keeners whose job it was to mourn formally. Okay. And their job is not only to mourn but to lead others in mourning. Okay. So to facilitate them in their mourning. So they knew what to say. They were masterful in their uh, ability to perform extempore poetry. So poetry on the spot okay. at the time. Freestyle, I suppose, the mm. equivalent of freestyle um, hip hop of nowadays. But they did it in this way, r- relying on a lot of formulaic phrases, but still it was extempore and it was of the moment and of the person. Mm. And whether they knew the person or not, they could lean into the stock phrases that they had and talk about the person in, yeah. in a respectful way. The more personal Keens, um, like, for example, Queen Artie Lady, they talk about the specifics of Art's death and it, it was performed by his um, 
his wife. So it's extraordinarily heartfelt mm. and tragic. Um, but she also talks about the man who killed Art, uh, Abraham Morris, the ugly traitor Morris, she calls him. And it's essentially a call for vendetta, a call for... She was speaking to the body, but it was for the benefit of those listening. Mm. And it was a call for them to avenge his death. So there's a lot of different functions that something like Keening yeah. and Wakes could provide to people. And um, would that have been something she could have said anyway? Or was it... Um, like, was she in a position to call for the avengement of that guy's death? Regardless, or is that something you could only get away with in the moment of a Athena Keener? I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but... Um, there are like there are airing of all kinds of grievances. Like we have some wake text, or sorry, um, keening texts, mm. which are wives, pre- predominantly wives, talking to their husbands and castigating them for bad behaviour if the husband was abusive or something. Okay. That can come across in the keen. So it would be very loving and heartfelt, but also contain invective against the person. Right. And I mean, it's giving voice to. And and who's going to tell a grieving woman lying, mm. standing over the body of her dead husband to stop now and don't be talking about those things? It was a socially sanctioned way to give voice and expression mm. to these things. And people's relationships with each other are complex and you may love somebody deeply who is not always good to you. And this was a way of talking about that. It was a social release. It was a psychological release. It was a form of therapy. Yeah, to give voice in front of all of his friends and family to the things that were not always good. They, most of them are praised, but sometimes they're not. And it's a wonderful way of healing, I think, and, and offering people reconciliation um, and closure. It seems like that was a very common role of women, was to be able to say the unsaid or to... We were reading about faction fighting. Hmm. Um, and there was that tradition of the... You had the opposing sides but each one would also have a woman poet who would in you know in probably insult the men in, in ways that men couldn't get away with because if you you know if people wouldn't hit a woman maybe or yeah it, it was just a different form of aggression you know yeah yeah for sure and i think you'll find in folk tradition as well there is the voice of disaffection comes through a lot, mm. in, you know, from be it women who had, a, you know, obviously a less prominent role in society than men mm. and would have been oppressed at times by the social structures around them. Um, we find those ideas come through in stories, in legend, in folk tradition. Um, other dispossessed people, the, I mean, you know, the, the, the rural Catholic... Um, peasant class as they would have been referred to Mm. at the time in their folk traditions you'll find them giving voice to disaffection giving voice to things that they were dissatisfied with Mm. in their own lot and you know women's voices are sometimes very clearly to be heard Mm. in folklore um sometimes not as much, obviously, as they should have been. Part of that, part of the problem there is the bias on behalf of collectors who Mm. would not always collect women's law or men who may not have been privy or have had access 
people may have been reluctant to speak to them about certain topics and things like okay. that. So that's part of the problem. You know, straight up misogyny as well in the way yeah. that it was presented and interpreted. Mm. Of course, people may have heard things and not either not known what they were or distorted them to fit their narrative. Mm. So that's that's part of the problem. But folklore, <coughs> folk traditions, legend, material, and the subsequent beliefs, the, the beliefs that are fed into legends, legend and belief sort of have this edifying effect on each other. Legends give rise to beliefs, beliefs give rise to legends and they sort of feed into each other. But you you find a lot of the darker aspects of life, a lot of the more challenging things that may not be openly spoken about are given voice in these ways, in Mm. metaphorical ways, in symbolic ways. And there's a lot of psychological content to be mined in these stories. You know, stories, encounters with the supernatural as well feature very commonly um, in legend material. The fairies, for want of a better word, um, they were known as the fairies in English, but it's it's a a more suitable way. So when you switch to Irish, which would have been the dominant language at the time, they're known as the Sloishi, which etymologically means sort of the people of the burial mounds, which is a much more accurate description of how people conceived of these entities, these beings. They're not little girls with wings and Mm. you know, anybody with even a passing knowledge of Irish folk tradition knows that Tinkerbells have nothing to do with Irish fairy tradition. Yeah, But encounters with the supernatural, with ghosts and with fairies are as often as not about giving rise or giving voice or expressing people's anxieties okay. with things in their reality. So this common idea about changelings, that yes. women could be abducted by fairies um, and replaced, mm. or that babies could be. These are essentially metaphorical ways of talking about, or, or at least it was an explanation given for things like high infant mortality rates, mm. which would have been massive in the 18th century. Um, women dying at childbirth. Um I, I suppose even like a lot of mothers experience anxiety after birth, like postpartum depression. Mm. So if a mother wasn't feeling connected with her child, it, it would give rise to the idea that the baby wasn't, it, it was an issue with the baby rather than her. Yeah. It really accurately described the emotion, wouldn't it? I think so. I mean, there's a complex set of things going on there. Mm. As we recognize now, there would be, Anxiety around the danger of birth. Birth Mm. is an inherently dangerous thing in the absence of modern medicine. Mm. Um, There is this notion of bonding and sometimes it doesn't work. Postpartum depression. Infant mortality, caught death, unexplained deaths. Um, But even something as simple as, you know, a child's failure to thrive. There seems to be a psychological framework constructed around why somebody would believe that their child is not thriving, their child is not putting on weight, their child is not healthy and happy. It may be easier to imagine that this sickly being, which, again, in the absence of modern access to modern medicine, people would have known there was a very real danger and that this child was not going to survive. Perhaps psychologically it was more 
um, comforting to think that this was not really their child, that their child had been abducted yes. to this other world realm and is safe there and that this thing in front of them is not really their child. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, to really get down to the, um, nitty- the nitty-gritty of it and the darker aspects of it, um, for people in these the rural poor living in these extraordinarily challenging circumstances at the time, um, a child who was sick, a child who may have been born with congenital defects, a child that may have had any kind of problem manifesting, if that child required tremendous effort, mm. and as we know, people in a caring role need an awful lot of support yeah. um, in order to care for people who may have all kinds of extra needs, um, for a family on the edge of poverty at that time, you know, caring for a sick child like that might bring ruin to the whole family. Mm. So perhaps there was child abandonment at that time or it was easier to not give as much care to this child psychologically knowing that it was not really a child. Yes. You know, depression... Anxiety, nervous disorders, they can strike people and they can they can come out of the blue as well. Like postpartum depression is, is an amazing example of somebody who may have had absolutely robust mental health their mm. whole lives and they have a child and all of a sudden they feel completely depressed or disconnected or whatever it is. Um, it gives voice to this anxiety that people have in a non-clinical way. Where, do, where does depression come from? Where does, you know, people may be struck by depression and not want to get out of bed. We we know now we're, we're having the, the conversation around mental health is mm. much more open nowadays. But for people who in the 18th century may not have understood what clinical depression was, what postpartum depression was, this is a way of talking about it, of yeah. giving voice to it. You know, even now in... in Hiberno English, we talk about somebody being away with the fairies. Yeah. And there's usually an implication that they're not connected to reality mm. in the way that everyone else should be, Maria. Um, but this is giving expression to this idea that their body might be here, but mentally they are away mm. with the fairies, that they are somewhere else. And it is a way of talking about mental health issues, about problems, uh, giving a rational, as they saw it, explanation for something that has no external cause. Yeah. Why do some people have depression and others don't? Sometimes it's circumstantial, sometimes it's clinical. We don't we don't know. We even still we don't know. We we're only getting to the grips with the human mind. And for a non scientific people, this was their way of making sense of the world, of talking about these things. Yeah. And particularly points of transition must have been very curious. Mm. You know, like the the woman becoming a mother or the, you know, child becoming born mm-hmm. it's, or someone becoming ill. Yeah. It's, if, if someone has been, say, depressed their entire life, you, we generally don't require an explanation because you just say that's the way they are. But if there's a change in a person, that's where we seek an explanation, you know? So... Yeah, these ideas of the these ideas really do explain those points, you know. They do, and and they're part of a sort of a very big and very wide language 
about their reality. You know, mm. fairy lore contains topographical information. It contains social information. It teaches people about danger. It teaches people mm. about hygiene. It teaches people about um, a whole host of things. So, you know, individual legends, when you look at individual legend, they may be short, they may be um, pithy, they may not be particularly insightful on their own but when you look at them as part of a big network of ideas you realize that this was an encoded way of perceiving the world which was at times very complex mm. were there many um like rituals of adulthood around this time time when you know like we were talking about points of transition were people considered to transition into being an adult or like a man or a woman were they I think marriage was the definitive um, okay. marriage was the definitive um, transition to adulthood and you know marriage we we have a very straight idea of what marriage is and how marriage works uh-huh. nowadays even you know it's in flux nowadays but it was I think it was constantly in flux um, and you see poetry and things like that talking about the state of marriage and, and society and social structures, how they affect marriage. But one of the things that comes across from a personal level um, is the way they spoke about people who were married versus people who weren't. So mm. um, a man in his early 20s who was married was considered a, a man where you may have a bachelor who might have been in his 60s and m- m- people would have at times referred to these people as boys. Really? Yeah, so that was the definitive... Um, sort of transition point as well. That's interesting. So I read a story about, or an account by one of the people from the Blasket Islands, and he talks about when he was young, he got a pair of shoes, and it's sort of novel because only married men wore shoes at the time, you know? So that would fit in, you know? Yeah, I think that was the the marker of what made a man and what made a woman. Um, Parenthood, of course, then being another very important one. Mm. And a lot of the the import of parenthood can be seen in its absence. So people who may have had fertility problems, mm. um, we see the, the the absolute social agony, I suppose, that these people went through because it was seen as a curse, I think. Yeah. Um, they talk about it in that way. And there's lots of different rituals and customs and traditions that talk about promoting fertility yeah. and ensuring people had plenty of children and that's really coming from both angles like the the church would have really looked down on someone being barren or infertile or you know yeah it's it's it 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 changes i suppose a little bit but for the most part it would have been considered a very important thing to do to Mm. have as many children as you could and um you know, I'm just thinking of later folk traditions, which I presume some of them are quite old as well, about couples going to um, megalithic tombs, to really? wedge tombs in particular, and lying on the capstones of yeah. these tombs. And presumably when they're lying on these capstones, they may have been lying in the biblical sense as well, yeah. um, in order to conceive. Or okay. things like putting a Bridget's cross under the mattress of couples who are looking to conceive as well. Really? So, there is this, you know, there's, again, it's a it's a bit like, you know, medicine or folk magic where you would draw the line, I don't know if you can, and, and religious ideas um, all 
sort of being an interwoven part of these people's lives. Mm. But, you know, th- that was the cure for infertility and infertility was seen as a curse or an affliction. And people took steps to ensure their fertility. Okay. Um, I presume as well for a lot of people in 18th century Ireland, um, having a lot of children would have been a social safety net too. Where yeah. It, it, you know, and I suppose you see that in countries even now that don't have robust social programs that people very often have a lot of children in order to hope that they will be looked after in their old age. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you increase education and when you increase social protection, yes. family numbers and offer people um, contraception, that access to contraception, that people would um, have smaller families. So yeah. in that context, there was it's, it's much more than, I suppose, just religious edicts telling them that they had mm. to have lots of babies, that it was um, it was an important thing. And with the, uh, the potato, you know, really taking off in the 18th century, yeah. um, people were having large families and could easily, more, more easily feed more children with a smaller amount of land. That was the thing that sort of boxed them in and, and, and made Ireland be in such a vulnerable and precarious position just prior to the famine was... Mm the over-reliance because people were having a lot of kids mm. um, and were able to feed them. So, that you know, what really took off in the 18th century set the scene for what happened in the middle of the 19th century. Yes. So. Uh, change subject. Will there be a lot of music? I just, I'm just aware at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, will there have been... Are we aware of the musical traditions at the time? Because um, I think sometimes stuff we think of as really old comes out much later than we realise. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we have far more information on music from the um, 19th century than the 18th, but what we do have, uh, we know there was the, the last vestiges of sort of the native classical music that would have been played by the Harpers Okay, um, was um, collected by Edward Bunting um and, and written down, and that would have been, you know, a lot of the a lot of the aristocratic culture, the the formal poetry, the harp music, um, the classical culture, the high culture of Ireland that would have been flourishing for centuries in the aristocratic Gaelic milieu, um, became mingled with folk tradition at that time. So the music and the poetry and the literature, the folk literature, is sort of a hybrid of if you want to call it high art and low art. Mm. Um, and a lot of the poets, the 18th century poets, um, they would have um, been of a tradition that stretched back to the medieval role of poets, which would have been quite high. Okay. Um, but they were sort of, and there's a lot of, a lot of the political poetry was coming from these poets who were quite aware of the social change, the language change um, in the 17th century and the 18th century and they saw themselves as the bearers of a tradition which was essentially dying out. Really? Yeah, and I think the the music, there would have been folk music of all kinds Mm -hmm. that would have always persisted and we're starting to see um, new instruments coming into the, into the, um, the tradition at that time but um the and again high music and low music the dance music that would have been played at fairs and things like that mm. uh and social social gatherings but i suppose the 
the most important of it is this harp music that was collected in in Belfast by Edward Bunce. And how was it? What was the change seen as? Like, did they have an awareness of what the old tradition was and the, what the new tradition was coming in? Or yeah, and it, it depends on who's speaking. But okay. the poets, as a group, were incredibly aware. Um, there's a lot of poetry from that time. You know, the Ashling poetry was very plugged into the social, political, and cultural change that was going on at the time. Um, they would have... There's a lot of expression is given to that, and Irish language poetry, in, in particular, when you look at Irish language poetry of the era, um, they're keenly aware of a decline. Okay. Um, and part of that is not so much a, a decline in speakers as such, although that is that is given voice as well, but a lot of it is to do with patronage. Um, right. And Ooh. they are aware that this culture, this high culture that they had is under threat and is it's a way of life that was dying out. Mm. Um, and that's wrapped up then in the politics of the era as well. And the art, the politics and the political situation informed the art. And that's where, like I said, a lot of the Ashling poetry um, comes from that as well. But even like if you take Kurt and Van Eyhe, um something like that um, is talking about... Um, marriage essentially and the changes in society at the time and the role of men and the role of women and the nature of romantic relationships and, and marriage and that kind of thing drawing heavily on learned tradition on allegory on you know classical learning there's all kinds of allusions in there as well and some of the poetry of the time whether it be Ashling poetry or others um, or laments or any of that was shows evidence of all kinds of influences, classical learning, allusions to Greek traditions, to Roman or to, to Latin traditions, all of mm. that kind of stuff. So, but yeah, to, to go back to the question, people were absolutely aware and were giving expression to their dissatisfaction with the way things were developing. Okay. But was there a sense it was some inevitable? Because is it, I suppose this is like that feeling today where some people feel like the I think there's a can be a general mood sometimes about the Irish language, say that it's the decline is inevitable, and there's some people think it was there was no it was absolutely not inevitable at the time, okay. particularly because the majority were speaking it. I think the famine was the real watershed in terms of the point of no return, mm. um, and that ha, but had not been reached at all. And again, the, the political poetry of the time it it, it talks about you know. Ireland in the form of a woman waiting for her saviour to come overseas, be okay. this the return of the earls or the French or the Spanish or whoever it was. Yeah. Um, so there was echoes of that a lot, but it's dis- dissatisfaction, but it's also hopeful mm. and prophecy as well. You know, Lily Bolero and all of those ideas about um, the prophesied return of saviours that fed into later ideas, into 18th century poetry about, you know, the, the thing was far from last. Um, mm-hmm. And there was, I don't think there was any sense of inevitability at that time. I think the poets at, at some points were lamenting uh, the fact that they had lost their patrons. And, but I don't think there was a sense 
of doom as such. There's a lot of aspiration and there's a lot of hope. So they saw the social situation or the political one as maybe something to endure, but ultimately could be. I think so, yeah. I think so. They were far from defeated, you know? Yeah. Um, So I suppose if you look at nationalism in the North today, Mm -hmm. there is a sense of very often not accepting things the way they are and an aspiration that at some point mm-hmm. the the tide will turn and that Ireland will become reunited. So you could draw a parallel to it in that sense, in that there is this aspiration for change, this mm. hope, this goal that they had in mind. Yeah. You know? Okay. I think we might wrap it up there. I think okay. that's a nice note to end on. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you.